0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 9th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Johnny Boone is a living folk hero in Kentucky, having been involved in at least one of the largest marijuana busts in American history, and then after a time in prison, upon being caught again, went on the run for eight years. But now Boone is in federal custody. Last week, I spoke with Jim Higdon, author of The Cornbread Mafia, about Johnny Boone's escapades. We spoke just before Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced his plans to allow U.S. attorneys to be more aggressive in prosecuting marijuana cases. You and I are both from Kentucky. Uh, You wrote a book called The Cornbread Mafia, uh, largely about a guy named uh, Johnny Boone. Who is Johnny
1: Boone? So Johnny Boone is this career marijuana grower from central Kentucky. Uh, He was arrested twice by federal authorities, once in 82, when he was caught smuggling about 500 pounds out of Belize into Louisville. And the second time in 87, when he and 20 Kentuckians were caught in Minnesota with what uh, Minnesota authorities says was 90 tons of marijuana. He did the better part of 15 years uh, in federal prison for that. And then in 2008, he got caught with 2000, um, seedlings in flower pots. Um, and that made him uh, become a fugitive because that would have been his third federal strike. So he was, um, while he was a fugitive, my book was published. Um, I finished my book and and, and published it. And so, um, he became, you know, in marijuana circles, kind of well known for being uh, this, the last of the marijuana, outlaws who was on the run so and i i
0: hate this comparison but it's 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 i think it's worth pointing out in terms of the size of the bust Mm -hmm. what is 90 tons like historically
1: okay so it's, it's it's a lot um and it's uh a round number right an estimated number uh the cops weighed one dump truck load and they multiplied that dump truck load by 62, which was the number of dump truck loads full of marijuana they took off the farm. And then so much marijuana remained on the farm that they just took that times 62 number and doubled it. So that's how they got 90 tons. Okay. So that's that's a wildly
0: th- a thumbnail, back of the envelope sketch of what was there. Ballpark.
1: Okay. but. And cop weight, for folks who understand these sorts of things, is probably like four times what the market weight would be because you're dealing with stems and roots and water that not, is, is not making itself to market. So, you know, like, you know, merely 20 or 30 tons of market weight. Okay. So, uh, but nonetheless, huge. Even if, even if
0: the cops were using a, an accurate measure of that's a huge amount of marijuana. It was, in, it was
1: an industrial scale.
0: I think some of the the community aspect of this is interesting because federal marshals went down to central Kentucky. This is an area that is very well known for bourbon distilling Mm -hmm. uh, and were essentially rebuffed by almost everyone they encountered when they were looking for this guy who had gone on the run.
1: Um, in, in my book, I managed to interview the head marshal at the time because he had retired by then. And he basically, he told me on the record that eight out of 10 people were unhelpful. So, you know, if the marshal is telling me eight out of 10, that the answer had to be nine and a half out of 10. So, uh, you know, they didn't, it did not go well for the marshals in Kentucky. They would, they would, they established these roadblocks to hand out wanted posters and people were just laughing at them. So, I mean, this is a,
0: this is an area that at one time was probably known for it for bootlegging sure and uh as that market transitioned into a legal market uh marijuana decades later became more popular kentucky it's marijuana is still probably kentucky's number one cash crop um it's and, debatable but no okay, sure. okay i mean but it has historically it historically, has historically sure yeah um, and the fact that These people are viewed, uh, Johnny Boone himself is viewed as, I don't know, what, a a public, just a businessman?
1: I mean, there's a Robin Hood aspect to this guy. Um, You know, he... People really, you know, not just a businessman, but you know, like a benefactor to the community. I mean, he gets compared to these other drug lords, but you know, this guy's dealing exclusively in marijuana. He wasn't diversified. He wasn't putting pills on the street. He wasn't moving cocaine. He was growing marijuana and selling marijuana, and that's what—that's all he did. So, what
0: was your association with him? You knew him before he was he—he re- he was uh, popped that last time.
1: So I grew up down there, and so this guy, when I where I grew up was a legend when I was in high school. Like he was like the high school legend, like because of these giant busts that they were associated with. Right. And I came home to write this book. And so getting Johnny on the record was like top of the to-do list, like talk to Johnny Boone and everyone I would talk to like, well, I'm going to need to talk to Johnny Boone. They would look at me and like, you can't do that. Like, are you crazy? And I was like, yeah, no, but I got to, like, I have to. So it took me 14 months of trying to get this guy on the record and going to see him was problematic. It's not the sort of person you can go knock on a front door of. Um, he lived at the end of a mile lane and the, 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 the lane was had a, a wire fence on the side of it. And the wire fence was covered in bones and cow bones that he had collected from various places. So there'd be like a whole string of fence that had rib bones on it. And then you take a turn and there'd be all leg bones down the thing. And then there were skulls, Facing you as you came up to his very sort of Texas Chainsaw Masquerish, um, which he had done on purpose to keep people away. Um, so anyway, it was it was hard to get him to talk. And even when I wanted to talk to him, and even if like when he was at this point where he wanted to talk to me, he was afraid that talking to me would make him uh, a rat. And being a rat is something in his line of work that one does not be. So it took a lot of me getting him comfortable with, um, what I was trying to do and we kind of, you know, work through, uh, you know, I got him to agree to allow me to search his DEA and FBI files and that yielded a lot of information and we kind of of went from there.
0: All right. So he goes on the run Mm -hmm. after having, uh,
1: been caught for what would have been his third strike. That's right. Where does he go? Well, everyone thought he went south. Um, he had these associations, his previous association with Belize, uh, something the cops said he spoke fluent Spanish, although I didn't know that to be true. Um, so everyone and then everyone assumed south. He ended up in uh, going the opposite direction and was uh, eventually caught um, at, on the Mohawk Indian Reservation outside of Montreal in Quebec. And this was how many years later
0: after he had been uh, found out for that third strike?
1: Uh, He went on the run in May of 08. He was caught in December of 16. So, you know, like eight years or whatever that is. All right. So uh, now that
0: that he's been arrested, now that uh, we have a new administration Mm -hmm. in the White House, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have Jeff Sessions, who is famous for having said... Good people don't smoke marijuana. Well, oh, that's
1: not what he's most famous for saying, though. What you... <laughs> that's fair. That's fair.
0: That's fair. We'll let people Google that on their own. Okay. <laughs> but he is at least famous for having said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has advisors who think that uh, doctors ought to be drug testing everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Uh, and he is somebody who... Does not seem to have a very high regard for federalism, at least to the extent that states have decided to uh, take it upon themselves to legalize marijuana. That's right. So, and that's all prologue. What has been the penalty that Johnny Boone uh, is likely to face now that he's been caught as a fugitive? Remember uh, from the Trump administration. Uh,
1: DOJ, Right. So like the way you set it up is, is, is exactly how one would look at it and think that, well, he's done. He's 73 years old. Uh, he's going to die in prison. Um, but then just a couple of weeks ago, he pled guilty to one charge with a max five year sentence with a max 20 uh, quarter million dollar fine. Uh, sentencing hearing is in March. So he ple- like his max sentence will be is less than what he was a fugitive for. So it's extraordinary. Okay, so uh, this would be a light sentence. It would be a light sentence. And do you have any idea why? Uh, I do not have any insight. Uh, I've not spoken to his legal team. Uh, I've not spoken to him since it's happened. Uh, So I don't have um, clear insight other than, um, you know, the fact that this particular defendant uh, has a book written about him and um, people who are— in public advocating on his behalf, certainly didn't, I don't think, um, hurt his cause. Um, although because he's notorious, it could have, they could have, you know, made an example out of him and jumped on him with both feet and, you know, on, on the other side of that. So, I mean, it could be a sign of the decline and fall of the marijuana prohibition that, Uh, Justice Department's kind of, you know, throwing their hands up in the air on this. So at the very least, it
0: seems that the Justice Department would like this to go away quietly. As quickly as possible. They don't want anything to do with it. It would appear. All right. So uh, let's contrast that with how Jeff Sessions has indicated he would like the drug war to be prosecuted in the United States.
1: He's made every indication, every chance he gets to suggest that he wants some sort of crackdown or you know, revision of a coal memo, which is the Obama era Justice Department guidelines for telling you know, prosecutors to basically like, you know, use prosecutorial discretion on these things. And basically like, you know, don't prosecute these folks, which is how it's been interpreted um, in legal marijuana states, you know, both for medical and for recreational marijuana schemes. But. Um, uh, so it seems like you know Jeff Sessions really wants to roll all that back, but maybe he's learning that the federal government alone doesn't have the the juice to really do it. That without the federal government working hand in glove with state and local officials, there's not a lot that they can do. Uh, California just legalized marijuana, or I should say
0: it just went into effect mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year. And there are a lot of Republican U.S. representatives in California, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have been fairly – uh, I'd say more than reasonable when it comes to uh advocating on behalf of a better federal marijuana policy.
1: Sure uh, Dana is basically synonymous with it. Um uh, Tom McClintock comes to mind. Um, uh so yeah the Republicans those those inland empire California Republicans um are definitely on you know on this page of of, of federalism. Um but typically Federalism has been invoked for Republicans on other issues for other reasons, right? And so this is a new thing for your, one's garden variety Republican to get one's head around. Um, but then just today, uh, the governor of Utah told a, a, a room full of high school students that medical marijuana legalization in Utah was going to happen. So you know the uh, the needle on this has moved incredibly fast,
0: and even in a, in a Trump administration era, he had said some fairly reasonable things about marijuana on the campaign trail. But of course, choosing Jeff Sessions as your attorney general would tend to uh, lead you perhaps to minimize the fact that you'd ever said those things.
1: I keep looking forward to the tweets on this, the presidential tweets on on marijuana. We're still waiting for 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 that to happen, we've not heard anything from the president, from the White House, on this issue. The ONDCP is still without a chairman, uh, not even one that's been um, nominated, because the one that they had nominated was got tied up in this DEA prescription pill in Broglio, um and had to pull his name out because it was clear that he was in the pocket of the big drug companies that were pumping oxycodone into America and stopping the DEA from doing anything about it.
0: Jim Higdon is author of The Cornbread Mafia and contributes regularly to The Washington Post and Politico. And you can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.